Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. These are the words of our Lord. Uh, I had a friend years ago who made an observation, (laughs) whether it's true or not, that they had a theory uh, about uh, the way in which uh, white Ole Miss students uh, put their favorite Bible verse quotes on their Facebook profile versus the way that African-American students put Bible verses on their profile. Again, I have no idea whether this is true. It's a very, it's a very uh, uh, loosely based scientific study here. <clears throat> but her observation was is that white Christians always put as their favorite Bible verses uh, um, th- verses with decidedly confident themes, Right? Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Whereas on the other hand, African-American Christians at Ole Miss constantly quote verses that have more um, militaristic themes, you know? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, I have no idea whether that's true or not, but it occurred to me, bear with me, (laughs) let's quote scientific evidence that doesn't exist. You're a preacher. You can just do that. Um. But it occurred to me that whether that's true or not, the principle is absolutely true, and it's absolutely accurate. You do not have to tell your average Southern African-American citizen that life is a battlefield. You don't have to do that. You want to know why? Because they've lived that battle. It's a generational battle that they've been through. And so the verses that they draw from are showing the fact that they have struggled with something. But look, if I was to describe Christianity in its popular form on this campus, to be honest with you, I think I would use the word insulated. In in other words, after 12 years of having the privilege of doing this job, I can say that one of the most common reactions to the presence of evil when it shows its ugly head on this campus is to avoid, to dodge, to ignore, or perhaps maybe to medicate ourselves to it. In other words, this is the reason why the natural reaction whenever there's campus tragedy that goes on is to go out and get wasted. It's the first step for us, right? 
In other words, what it means that in this very, bear with me, Caucasian room, um, the passage that we're going to talk tonight about the warfare of being a Christian is going to be very foreign for you. In other words, I almost have to introduce you to the fact that there is a struggle before we start to understand what that struggle really is about. Paul wants us to know that if God's secret, if his plan, the God with a plan as it's working out in human history is to get out and to transform this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light in his son, you are hopelessly naive to think that that's going to happen without a fight. There's going to be a struggle that's involved in this activity of pressing forward with God's mystery. And so I want to look at this whole issue of evil and this issue of the fight under three headings, as per usual. First of all, I want you to notice the reality of the evil. We want to see the nature of the opposition and then finally the resources for our resistance. Okay, the reality of evil, the nature of the opposition, and the resources that God has given us for the resistance. Okay, look, um, the reality of evil, I'll be honest with you, I feel like we live in an age where this almost, this has to be retold with every generation. Um, There are two considerations I want you to look at. First of all, we have to understand evil as it comes to us in the macro view of American culture. And then I want to look at it from the micro view of an Ole Miss culture. Look, y'all, to be honest with you, in the last 10 years or so, uh, there are more and more people that are noticing that the evil that happens in in the universe has got to be more than just sort of malformation or maladjustment or something. That is, if we were to dial back some 200 years or so, you would find that most people understood that when they saw evil happen around them in the world, that evil had an ultimate cause. And that ultimate cause could be traced back to, and bear with me for this phrase, I know it's awkward, to a malevolent personality. That is that there was a character, a person that was behind evil that was orchestrating what went on. They recognized that there simply had to be someone, not something, but someone who was orchestrating the events to bring about the utterly senseless destruction going on around them. But in our day, somewhere along the way, we started attributing evil and the nature of evil to what we might call natural forces right? These are just things that happen. We look at things like, how was it that uh, so many years ago that attack happened on the students at Columbine? How could that happen? And of course, our society says, well, it was due to to bad parenting. Uh, Maybe it was because they lacked careful supervision at the school. Uh, We look and say, how is it possible that that 13-year-olds end up in gangs and, and become crack addicts in our world? Well, we say, well, it's because of a lack of education uh, uh, to telling them that they need to just say no to drugs. That's the problem. In other, words, by the, in other words, whenever there's sort of a restless evil that comes to this culture, we're constantly trying to push it away to natural explanations. Uh, we're coming up on the, um, the 10th anniversary of 9-11, and you do realize that it's hardly a week goes by where the Discovery Channel does not run some sort of documentary on what happened on that particular day. And, of course, it's all back out after the events of this uh, particular weekend. 
These things are still going on, and they still fascinate us. But I think I know why. It fascinates us because when we look at those people who drove those planes into the towers in New York City 10 years ago, we think to ourselves, well, those people were crazy. But the further that we looked into their lives, we found just the opposite. Rather, these people were sane, calculating, earnest, uh, passionate men that we look at and say that defies a natural explanation. Look, Paul looks at this particular trend and he says this. He says, we wrestle not against natural explanations for evil. We wrestle not against these things, but we wrestle against spiritual forces. In other words, he's not saying that nature does not have some role in the discussion, some role. What he's looking at is saying, though, there's something more. There is something behind the tragedies that we experience. There's someone working. There's someone planning. There's someone executing here. There's a Methodist bishop, actually in North Alabama, of all places, uh, by the name of William Willimon, who I was listening to lecture at one time. And Willimon was talking about this culture's uh, sort of rediscovery of evil. And it's very interesting. Prior to the late 1990s, um, the way in which evil was depicted in popular movies, I think I've mentioned this before, um, is very much in a comic way. You know, you have, a, you know, uh, 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 what's his name, Freddy, uh, Freddy Krueger, you know, with the big long knives for fingers. Uh, uh, you, you have uh, Jason, you know, you know, in other words, there's sort of cartoonish, larger than life views of evil. But all of a sudden in the late 1990s, there were a group of people that took a camera and made this very cheap, low budget horror film called The Blair Witch Project. Some of you have watched this, it's sort of a very shaky sort of thing. It is a horrifying movie, not because it shows blood and guts, but because everything that it suggests about the evil out there in the woods is all inferential. It's not obvious. And what Willimon says is, he goes, that was the first time that this culture began to look up and say, you know what, I actually think there might be somebody out there. And we failed to look and own what the Bible said about evil having someone behind it. And your generation, I think, is asking these questions again. Is there something that can be behind that kind of radical evil? Okay, but what does that mean for us? That's sort of the macro view. What about the micro view here at Ole Miss? Look, what that means is this. What if I told you tonight, I want you to think about this for a second. What if I told you tonight that I was aware that there was someone on this campus who was after you? They were out to get you. There is someone here who longs and is plotting and is planning for your ultimate harm. My guess is, is you would go home in a very different posture. You'd be unbelievably watchful, would you not? You would, you would avoid certain paths. You would do your best to stay in the light, would you not? In other words, some of us are getting ready to be so confused or have presently been so confused about how your life is going and so heartbroken over the fact that your life is not going the way in which it, wants, it, it needs to go. And you fail so often with these constant temptations that are delivered to you in college. And you're trying to find natural explanations for it. You're saying things like, well, it's because I'm not reading my Bible enough. Uh, it's because my parents are, are getting a divorce. Uh, it's because I don't have any self-discipline. In other words, we're constantly trying to push this thing out. And what Paul is looking and saying is, to some degree, 
The reason why there is evil in this universe is because it's not because of some impersonal you know, force out there. But there is a personality that is out there that is dead set on your misery. There's a personality that is longing for that particular thing. And Paul calls him Diablo, the devil, right? The word devil sort of conveys someone, if you look at the literal translation, of someone who launches a missile from an ambush, sort of a surprise attack that's trying to come and destroy. Come destroy what? The devil comes to destroy the joy of believing people. The joy of those who are following hard after God. In other words, the devil's intent is to make you a supremely unhappy person. He wants your misery and is restless until he has it. He delights in your pain. He laughs at your tears, loving the fact. And he despises the fact that you are even here tonight because you've placed yourself in many ways behind the freight train of this preached word. And it's the one thing he doesn't want you to do. And it's one of the reasons why things got hard when you started looking into these things. In other words, what the devil would like is for you to remain blissfully unaware. This is the beauty of being drunk. <laughs> In other words, I can sort of set these things aside. That I don't have to think about them. Maybe that's the reason why this is such an alcohol-saturated culture here at Ole Miss. Is it possible that the usual suspects was right? That the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Paul looks and says that behind the problem of evil is a personality that must be dealt with. Secondly, though, that's the fact that there is evil. But secondly, we need to see the nature of that opposition. How is it that he comes against us? And I want to make two points about this as well. First of all, the location of the opposition. And second of all, the approach of the opposition. This is a little bit more subtle, but it's profound First of all, where does this conflict happen? This is a huge point. And to be honest with you, I almost wish that I'd done the whole night on this one point. Uh, it came from Sinclair Ferguson when he was teaching through uh, the book of Ephesians. Notice where Paul says this conflict happens. The conflict takes place where? In the heavenly places. Now think about that for a second. That there is a conflict that's going on. There is a battle that's going on. But it takes place in the heavenly places. What in the world does that mean? Well, rather than go to some sort of weird, very Gnostic kind of understanding about the invisible world and like, uh, I think I see a pair of glowing demon eyes in the corner. Think about that in terms, <laughs> that was a little bit funnier than that. That's all right. We'll go right past it. Um, Think about it in terms of what the Bible has already said. Hey, the phrase heavenly places has already been used. Remember? Remember from chapter 1, verse 3? Paul looks and says that we were what? Seated in the heavenly places. Go back to the beginning of the semester back in January. What did we say about that? Paul was looking and saying that the main place where God is dealing with you is to grant you a new status. And that status has been given to you in Christ. And the way in which he describes that status is that it is located, ready, in the heavenly places. Now, again, rather than go into some weird mystical world, go to that. That's where Paul is saying this battle is happening. The battle that goes on with the devil is going to happen on the grounds of your struggle for identity. You got to get that. <laughs> That's the big one. It's a big one. 
The battleground of the devil will happen in the place where you struggle to know who you are. That's what it means when it says that this battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's in the heavenly places. It's in the places that are immaterial that the world can't see where you struggle to know who you are. That's where this battle is. Don't misplace it. It'll be raged on that front where your identity rests. Now look, I think this dramatically separates Paul's view from some of the, how do you say this, the the sort of pseudo-spiritual wackiness that oftentimes people uh, caricature spiritual warfare from being. I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of folks that spend a lot of time thinking about spiritual warfare in terms of uh, like binding Satan, you know, uh, um, cursing the demon of the missed parking space at Walmart or something. Uh, you know, rebuking spirits that are in their children or, or in their, the weeds in their lawn or something like that. I, all those things I've actually heard people say. In other words, that's not what Paul is saying. Those things are cartoonish. That is not where the warfare takes place. Sinclair Ferguson says that the point of this passage comes at the end of three sections where Paul has been talking about the most mundane activities. Has he not? What's he been talking about? He's been talking about our marriage. He's been talking about our family. He's been talking about our work. Guess what? That's the place where the battle happens. Because all of those things are going to be places where you're going to be tempted to place your identity. That, that was kind of big there. You missed it. Let me say it again. You, you, I didn't get the reaction I needed from you right there, from the picture. Um, Paul is saying that those mundane things will always be the thing that calls to you and says, build your identity off of me. And so when there is warfare in the heavenly places, it's on that battleground. Does that make sense? That's a perfect lead into the second point. That's That's the location of the battle. What is the approach to Satan's attacks in our battle? Well, there it is. And this is, a, this is a Kellerism, no surprise there either. Um, that Paul says, it's interesting that Paul says that we are to, that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We don't wrestle with these powers. In other words, we wrestle with them, we don't have a shootout with them. Now what's the difference? Well, when you sort of wake up to the reality of evil, you see that evil is close. It's a near thing. We don't have a shootout with evil where we can kind of see it from a long ways away. It's weird, it's creepy, and bang, 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 we'll try to gun it down with our you know, Holy Spirit gun or something like that, right? No, no, no. We wrestle with it. It is close. And what Keller says is, is that means that the main temptations that the devil is going to put in front of you are the things that are close to you. I mean, it is everyday stuff. Stop caricaturing the devil as being in these very odd, very distant, very strange and mystical places in the television set or with the movie or whatever. Mm-mm. It is in your dating relationship. It's in something that in and of itself is usually a good thing. You ever thought about that? Marriage is a wonderful thing. Your family is a great thing. Work is a good thing that God gave to us. But it will be those places, Keller says, that will always be trying to gain the ascendancy in your life. And here's the deal. Once they sort of hold out that attraction to you, Paul is saying there will be all kinds of evil forces surrounding it. So that you'll have to wrestle with those things. It will be a wrestling match for you. And there will be very subtle ways For some of us, those subtle ways even happen in the rejection of certain things by taking pride in the fact that we don't do some things. Look, in other words, 
Stop looking for the devil in these ridiculously obvious places. It is unlikely that the devil's going to kind of come up to you and say, hey, let's graduate from Ole Miss and get a job where we can gouge the poor. He's not going to say, hey, let's do this. Let's cheat on our taxes, right? That's not the way that it comes. Rather, what's going to happen is is he's going to work through your desire for the position, for the relationship, for the family, that he's going to come in and say, I just simply want to keep you from even asking the questions, from even considering these things. And then once he gets you there, he's got you. He doesn't come on and say, hey, let's work really hard, alienate your spouse and your family so that one day they'll leave you. He doesn't say that. You know what he'll say? He'll say, you need recognition. You deserve more than this. You work hard. You ought to get this time away. You, ought to, you deserve these kinds of things. In other words, it's the flattery of the devil that comes to us, as the apostle says, as an angel of light. It'll always be something that I look and say, I deserve this. I worked for this. In other words, it'll come on the heels of your pride, not in a red pajama horned, <laughs> bifurcated tail. <laughs> so, bro, brother, where art thou for those who didn't catch that? You know, with a pitchfork or something, you know, blah, blah. It's not the way that he comes. He comes to us on the battleground of our identity in ways in which, in ways in which threaten that very thing. We wrestle. We don't shoot at. Thirdly and finally, this brings me to the, to the last point. What are the resources that God has given us for resistance in this battle, right? Look, there are two things here. There's two things that he gives. In many ways, the first one is the most obvious, uh, and, and Keller actually said in one of his sermons that the first resource, in many ways, almost sums up the entire book of Ephesians. It says what? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That is huge. And in many ways, it's a summary of the whole teaching of the book. Look, it means that Christians do not fight this battle in the same way in which the devil will tell us that we ought to fight this battle. In other words, the devil's tools are control. The devil's tools are power. The devil's tools are a slavish fear where he comes and threatens and intimidates us. Right? But see, Jesus didn't come and do that, now did he? Jesus comes along and he died. He comes and he sacrifices He comes not as a trumpeting, loud, draw attention to myself king. No, he showed up in a barn where the whole world didn't take notice. And yet suddenly in a small place in the stillness, the God of the universe, when he was born, did not come with pomp and circumstance. But but, but humbly, in the slightest of places, that is his place. And y'all, one of the greatest temptations and the hardest to get out of your soul is the desire to win by force and by power. And there are few people that taught me this better than J.R.R. Tolkien. And he was trying to teach you from the grave in those doggone movies. That is what the ring is. The ring of power was what it granted you. When you grasped it, when you held on to it, when Frodo and Bilbo constantly find themselves turning at it, looking at it, Feeling tempted by what? By the power that it would grasp. Even to the point where the greatest of forces, 
Galadriel herself, even Gandalf would fall into the temptation of seeing the ring in front of them and having to pass on the temptation. The ring of power comes in front of everyone. We are constantly tempted to say, the way in which I'm going to get my way in my marriage is by shaming her, by embarrassing him, by shouting or hurting them. The way in which I'm going to tell that friend the way in which they need to treat me is by giving them the cold shoulder. I'm actually going to completely avoid them just to sort of dig in that screw of vindictiveness. You're grasping at the ring. You're grasping at the ring and trying to hold it yourself. The way in which I can get ahead in this job is by leaving my family for just a few more hours. They'll be fine at home. She's there. The way in which we're going to make our budget work this year is by just cutting a couple little corners on our taxes. Those are the places where it happens. And all of a sudden we find that in the midst of that we've been overtaken. Y'all, can I tell you that, that in these last couple months of reflection on my time here, I'll be honest with you, I've had to count how many pastoral failures that I have logged in my 12 years in front of you and serving you because I've tried to talk a person to death <laughs> rather than listening. Even a pastor can grasp at the ring of power by wanting to simply manipulate, wanting you to walk out of my, out of my office convinced rather than loved. Whew. That one is stung. But it's been to my shame because the ring is always held out there because that's wanting to do things in my power. And Paul looks and says, be strong in the strength of the Lord and in the strength of his might. And his might doesn't look like your might. His might is foolishness to this world because it's the might that we exercise when we submit to each other. When all of a sudden we look and say, I'm going to serve those people this coming Saturday and help them clean up their yard from the tornadoes that came through. I'm going to give of my time. I'm going to cut out places in my schedule where I can go and serve those who don't have anything because of the bounty that he's given me. That is subversive, Paul says. It changes the world by following Jesus' example in that sense. Be strong, but in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, that doesn't, that doesn't build you up, my friend. It will knock you down. And that's the reason why it's foolishness to the world. But secondly, and I'll finish with this, there is a spiritual armor that God has given. Uh, look, when I was growing up, boy, oh boy, folks made a huge deal of this passage trying to figure out like how each piece sort of fit into the whole deal. Um, you know, uh, to say, you know, this is how this is protected. This is how that is protected. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I have read some wild-eyed interpretations and applications of this passage that, quite frankly, they just aren't there. Uh, um, there's an old uh, Puritan named William Gurnall who wrote a three-volume, three-volume, big, thick books on the spiritual armor. Uh, bear with me. I I'm just not convinced that that's the way this text is supposed to be read or taken. No, no, no. What Paul says is, and look at it carefully, is that these things are to be taken up. In other words, I want you to take these things up. In other words, I think that Paul is talking about something that is already yours in Christ. 
In other words, these are resources that are already there so that each one of these pieces of armor does not correspond to some new spiritual gimmick. Well, everything was going hard in my life until I learned to take up the shield of faith. And look how different my life is. Okay, mm, look, the pieces of the armor are trying to say something, brace yourselves, about your new identity. It's, it, they're in the heavenly places. They are spiritual armor, right? Look, the belt of truth, what is that? That's the integrity that comes from not having to, be pre to pretend anymore, to be someone who is authentic. The, the breastplate of righteousness is this realization that God is my righteousness. This attempt of trying to prove myself no longer has to happen. You know, these shoes of readiness that we are to have describe the peace that comes from finally understanding what my life is about and wanting to share it with others. The shield of faith deals with our focus. It's what we're looking to and from which we draw our life so that by using it we can avoid these fiery darts of temptation that threaten to tell us that we're not who we are. And the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, is the Word of God. The Word of God. What is the Word of God? It's my new spiritual history. This is now who I am. Only Jesus can tell you who you are if you know him. That's what the spiritual armor is about. Stop making it so weird. It's wonderful. It's trying to get you to think about how you think about you. Oh, I love that. And I, and, and I love it because it, this is a series that I did years ago. And, and it's, I love the thought that God allowed this sort of thing to sort of arrive where it was. Because there's really nothing else that I wanted to say to you in however long that you've been here. How do you sum up what you kind of wanted people to get? Well, here we are. You're right at the doorstep here at the very end of Ephesians. Don't you see that every one of these things is a gospel grant from God to help you figure out who you are in Christ? That's what the whole book is about. I mean, this is what Paul has been trying to say to us through the whole book. Be who you are in Christ. Here's what he has done in you and for you. Now go act like that's actually true. Go be what he has established you to be. He doesn't say, oh, I'm a Christian, you know. I shouldn't be like this. No, that's trying to do it in the strength of your might. Oh, that's terrible. Work harder next time. That's your strength. Now Paul looks and says, wait a minute, what's going on in my life? If my life is struggling, if it's failing, if there's inadequacies in my heart, then there must be something here, some place where I have forgotten who I am in him. Something else is rivaling me in my own self-definition. Only he can tell me who I am. Look, y'all, doing battle is to look to the good things and to say to all the good things, like your marriage, like your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, to look at your job, to look at your family, to look at your physical attractiveness, to look at your popularity with your friends, to look at whatever and say, you will never be the thing that defines me. You are not my righteousness. Only he can define that for me. Look, y'all, when it all gets summed up, 
The battle that wages spiritually in us is a struggle to make certain that we do not forget that the God that we worship in Christ is in his own unique person altogether lovely. And there is no other way in which I could have thought that I wanted to finish off my time in front of you than saying that. When I was in seminary, I sat in the back of the classroom three down in Jackson in seminary. And I remember a professor, friend of mine, who actually went on to officiate at my wedding, standing up and talking about Christ's righteousness and saying that if that's something that has not occurred to you yet, that God is not going to judge you on the basis of your merit, but on his. He said, I'll bet you're a very insecure Christian because you're constantly looking to something that you did for confidence. And I remember being so broken by that thought. But the funny thing was, was as I made my way up across that little grassy area there back to my dormitory on campus, I remember like having it sort of wash over me. And I said to myself, I even said it out loud to myself, I was like, oh, so I don't have to do this. And it was really funny that that was the day, that was really the first day that I thought to myself, people should know this. And for the last 17 years, it's the only thing that I've had to say. And there's part of, a, there's part of an embarrassment of even standing up here because I know how poorly I've demonstrated that to you and for you, I promise you. But I simply want to hold out something that there was this tiny little glimmer. It was like a streak of light that came through the clouds of my life at that time and said, what if, what if there is a God who forgives? What if there is a Christ who does not merely tolerate but embraces? What if there is a word that he leaves us that doesn't have to have power breathed into it, but is the picture of power itself? What if he makes a pronouncement about our status that has nothing to do with the merit that we have inside of our hearts? What if he made a promise that a good work that he started in you from the very beginning, he will be faithful to complete it? What if there is a God who is committed to your holiness that ultimately ends in your complete and utter eternal happiness. What if that's true? I don't know what I'm going to do without you people. Because you've been so kind to come and to, to hear that. But if there's anything that you, if there's one thing that you walk away with, it would be that one thought. That there's something in Christ and in the gospel that is altogether lovely. And like it's always been, it is tonight an invitation for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are um, we are grateful for the experience that we have of being able to look into your word, 
We are grateful that what we have stumbled across there was something different than what our evil hearts had caricatured up until this time. Some of us heard it when we were very small from the voice of our parents who told us what the real gospel was. Some of us heard it on the lips of a youth director who just years ago opened up windows of understanding that we never thought possible. Some of us heard it for the first time when we came to college and were faced with things that we never thought that we would face. Some of us just heard it tonight. But we are so grateful that when we pull back the curtain of the reality that we see around us and we look into the heavenly places, that what we see there is good news. Good news. That there is joy on the other side. And you waiting with grace to penitent broken sinners just like us. And so, Father, in whatever way we know to do, we would come to you now and we would say with the fullness that you have granted us in the gospel that at long, long last, it is well with our souls. Lord Jesus, for these these friends of mine, would you grant them the grace of being able to see beyond the vision of their failing campus minister heights and depths and lengths of love and joy and goodness that you have in your gospel that my frailties couldn't lead them into. And in so doing, we pray that you would restore your world, that you would tell your secret, that you would unveil your mystery, that you would invite the broken in, that you would expand your kingdom, that you would purify your church, and in so doing, allow for all of us to anticipate that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all of God's people said, Amen.